Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Did you know there's a connection between Billy Joel and one of the most popular cartoons of the 1980s? We didn't know either until a few weeks ago. Recently, Michael and I interviewed Larry Frank, who was the second engineer on Songs in the Attic and the Nylon Curtain. During that conversation, Larry mentioned that, after working with Billy and Phil Ramone, he worked on the cartoon Thundercats, which ran in syndication from 1985 to 1989. During the show's run, that cartoon was about as big a deal to me as Billy Joel, maybe even more. Hey. I was in elementary school, and hearing that Larry was an integral part of one of my favorite childhood shows meant I couldn't pass up the opportunity to hear more about it. We'll hear Larry's memories of working with Billy in a few weeks, but for my playlist episode this year, I'm doing something a little different. Instead of playing songs I worked on, or by artists I really enjoy, I spoke with Larry and supervisory producer Tony Giovaniello about how they put together 130 episodes over four years. If you're around my age and remember rushing home from school every afternoon to catch the latest adventures on Third Earth, you'll love this intimate look at how a piece of your childhood was made. And even if you're too young or too old, or just wasn't into the show, you'll still enjoy the stories, behind-the-scenes information, and the memories of how important the production was for Larry and Tony. Not only for their careers, but also for the fun they had and the close friends they made during the show's run. So join me as I dig deep into Thundercats. Chitara! Lionel, why are you standing there? There's still five miles to go. I know. Then you know what that means. Yes. And you concede defeat. No, I haven't lost until you've won, Chitara. In that case, it's almost sundown, Lionel. Yes, let's do it. One, two, three, go! Well, this is one of those rare occasions when procrastination actually pays off. Every year, I do my playlist episode right around Thanksgiving. And by August, I'm thinking about all these great ideas for it. And by September, I think I have an idea. And by the time October rolls around, I realize I got to get on it. And then November is here and I realize I really have to get on it. Well, this time, I was just a few weeks out from having to deliver the episode when Larry, as I mentioned in the intro said in passing that he worked on Thundercats. And I'll be honest with you, I hadn't thought about the show for probably 20 years, maybe more. But the second he said it, I was immediately excited. I immediately remembered watching the show, getting the toys, running around with my friends, screaming Thundercats ho. And so we spoke a little after our interview about Larry's work with Billy, and we decided that it would be a great idea to speak with him and Tony about their work on the show. Just as we get to dig really deep into the nooks and crannies of all our favorite Billy Joel records, Larry and Tony really indulged me and gave me a real behind-the-scenes look at what it was like putting together a cartoon in the 1980s. Just remember, this is before digital, so everything was hand-drawn, everything was recorded analog, and they had to put all these shows together, 65 episodes in the first season and 130 episodes overall. We'll be back to Billy on our next episode, but for now... I hope you sit back, relax, and enjoy a look at how one of the biggest cartoons of the 1980s was created. Thunder! 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 Thunder Pets! Well, Larry and Tony, thank you so much for speaking with me this evening. Between... uh, Talking about Billy Joel and Thundercats, we are completely reliving my youth in the 80s right now, so this is certainly a lot of fun for me. Larry, starting with you then, we first started speaking um, because we were talking about your involvement with Billy Joel and Phil Ramones, particularly on Songs in the Attic and the Nylon Curtain, and you mentioned that you went on to work on Thundercats. So how did you become involved in Thundercats? After those years uh, with Phil and and his projects that he was working on, uh, one of our, our our clients was Rankin Bass, and Rankin Bass is the creator of Thundercats. I had worked on, along with John Curcio, who was their engineer at the time, 
uh, the last unicorn and they also did frosty the snowman and rudolph and those animation films that everybody knows i was sort of uh at a, in a holding period for a time at a and r the word came across that they were that uh, jules and arthur were, th were thinking of doing the thundercats i'm not quite sure why but it was not done at a and r it was known that it was going to go to Howard Schwartz recording. Howard had a, a studio in, in the Gray Bar building uh, off of uh, Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. John Curcio said, well, you know, I don't really want to go to Howard's. I want to stay here at A&R. So why don't you do the job, Larry? Uh, why don't you give it a shot? And at first I was a little bit reticent. You know, I, 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 was, I was doing records and I, I, I know that this was a lot of dialogue recording and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do it through... Uh, Better uh, logic and better reasoning uh, luckily got, got hold of me. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And uh, I left A&R at that point. That was eight, 1984. Uh, I went over to Howard Schwartz Recording. And that, that was where Rankin Bass set up shop with Lee Doniger uh, to begin Thundercats. Now, the music for uh, Thundercats, we did it at A&R. The, the orchestral music was, was done at A&R Recording. Uh, Howard really, really didn't have big music rooms where he was, so we did that at A&R. And uh, when did you and Anthony meet? I met Tony on, on Thundercats. Uh, I guess they were looking for a producer, and mm -hmm. Tony was the man. <laughs> Tony was the one, and, uh, that, and that's when I went and met Tony, and uh, mm -hmm. the rest is, uh, is history, so to speak. And uh, Anthony, uh, what's your background, and how did you become involved in Thundercats? So I actually was an employee of Howard Schwartz Recording for a few years before Thundercats. I was an assistant engineer to begin with, and then I did some engineering, but I moved into management at one point, and I was managing the studio for about a year and a half. I had a chance to move to another studio. I went there for about eight months and hated it. I'm glad I didn't mention the name of the studio, uh, <laughs> but I didn't enjoy the experience. Uh, and I actually went and had a lunch with Howie, Howie Schwartz uh, one afternoon to see. I knew my old job wasn't available, but I was, uh, I was hoping that he would just keep his ears out for, for me for another gig. After having lunch with him, I went back to his office and said, uh, you know, Howie, you know, just think of me if you hear of anything, you know, you know in the grapevine. I said, okay. You know, he said, fine, that's great. Uh, so I walked out, <laughs> and as I was walking down the hall towards the exit of the uh, of the complex, passing me is a woman named Lee Doniker, who I didn't know at the time. <laughs> Lee Doniker was our executive producer on the whole series, including all of the other series, uh, Silverhawks, Tiger Sharks. She was the uh, executive producer. And she was on her way into Howie's office, and Lee said to Howie, uh, Howie, we're, we're looking for another producer. Uh, do you know anybody you can recommend? He said, yeah, that guy that just walked out. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so that's kind of my introduction to Rankin-Bass and, and the Thundercats. Lee and I had lunch. We talked. He invited me to the recording of the first episode, the pilot script of Thundercats at Howard Schwartz, the dialogue part. At that time, I met Jules Bass and Arthur Rankin, the, the owners of the company, uh, so I got my intro there, and uh, about two weeks later, I started working as a producer on Thundercats. I was so happy about the situation because I, I kind of wanted to always do some production work. And being an engineer, you're always working with great producers. So if you got good ears, you can be a good producer as well. But so that was sort of my intro to uh, to Thundercats and and Rankin Bass. And had you done? film or television? Mostly at Howard Schwartz, we were doing advertising. We were doing mostly commercials. We did a lot of Purdue chicken. We did a lot of Jell-O commercials. So I didn't really do any real production other than produce music on my own. Uh, I got the opportunity, uh, as many people did who worked in recording studios, we got to use the studios after hours a lot. So I did a lot of recording that way and recorded like some of my songs, some of my friends' songs, that kind of thing, you know, so how you start off in the business. Ragged Bass was really my first production job. And uh, it took a little bit of a little bit of training in a sense, you know, to know what their system was. It wasn't a typical production. You know, within a few months I was uh, I was rocking and rolling with everybody else. Most studios in New York 
a lot of times the bread and butter of these places was was advertising because advertising was happening all the time and engineers like me and elliot shiner too i mean we cut our teeth on commercials because uh, mm. at that point it was rhythm horn strings vocals rhythm horn strings vocals in out in out in that process we learned recording basically how, where to position microphones how to record a string section how to record horns and drum set you know so it was uh and howard howard was no exception they did plenty of advertising there too just like a and r reading up on the thundercast production it sounds like everybody was just thrown right into this crazy production schedule you know 65 episodes for the first season i guess for the second one too you both coming from audio it sounds like there was you know a bit of a learning curve getting into recording the voices and voice talent and and doing the production so with, with all this going on when did you realize the show was going to be the success it was or that it was the success it was? We were in it for six months or so uh, and kind of in this crazy schedule. And like you mentioned, it was a learning curve. So everybody was learning at the time. At the beginning, we weren't really focused on seeing the success of this thing. But the one turning point for me was, and I don't even know how this happened, we started getting fan mail at the studio from like five-year-olds, you know, written cards with, you know, scribbling and pictures of Thundercats and all of that stuff. And I thought to myself, wow, if we're getting fan mail from kids, this is really something. This is something right. that's it's happening, you know? Uh, so that was sort of my inkling into, oh, this is going to be a success. And and then when the toys started showing up, because as soon as a new toy came out, we got one at the studio to to, to add to our collection because we had a big collection of of, of uh, yeah. toys at that time. When the toys started coming in, I thought, "Oh, this is going to be this is going to be a big hit," because they were the the toys were really cool. Even as I was I was thirty at the time or whatever, you know, the, I I already knew that this was really cool. You're jarring my memory now, too. And uh, I, for me, I remember maybe a turning point like that was when we learned that we had over, overtaken in the TV ratings. He-Man Masters of the Universe was number one for a long time, and we, we overtook them as number one. And I remember the excitement around that when we were told that. And, uh, but but to, to, be, to be honest, Jack, I mean, the way we did this, the way everybody worked, it was there was a synergy there. There was an excitement and an energy. It's a tough question because we, we all gave it our all right from the beginning. And I don't know, I, mean, I, I guess it could have not been so uh, such a big deal. But it, when it was, it was sort of like, okay. It was sort of like vindication on, our, on the hard work we had put into it. So we just kept mm -hmm. going. It just, gave, it just gave us more fuel to keep going, to up, you know. Oh, we're going to do a, what is it, a second season coming out? Oh, you're thinking of another show of Silverhawks? You're kidding me. What are we going to do all this? You know, but uh, for me, it was it was that the TV ratings. When for me, that was a, if there was a tipping point. After a while, as kids like me got older, and you know, we got a little cynical, and then everybody got cynical in the '90s. We look back on maybe the cartoons we watched, and we were getting the impression, or sort of learning, or being told that man, they just, they just put stuff on the TV you to uh, buy toys, you know, and that was mm -hmm. it. But, you know, and speaking with you guys beforehand and, and reading up on the Thundercats and, and what you guys put into it, and even going back and watching some of those episodes now uh, on Hulu, you know, it, it occurs to me that it, it feels like there was a lot more to it, at least, you know, on your end, on the, on the production end, coming from, you know, a, recording a lot of advertising and, and getting into this, which is, you know, I guess uh, at an intersection of being creative and, and in a sense being advertising, do you think that you guys as a whole treated this, I guess, maybe more seriously than, than perhaps other cartoons? Or was the culture like this for just, you know, if there's any creative endeavor, everyone just gives it their all no matter what the topic? Whatever the work ethic was, technically, as you know, with, you know, Lee and Jules and Arthur, they they may not have worked with Phil, but they were around the A&R way of doing things, which was always, you know, like, do it right or don't do it. For me, there was no difference doing this show than I would have been, you know, working on Billy Joel or working on any other project at A&R Recording. Lee Doniger and Jules Bass and Arthur was very rarely at the studio, but they they knew the way that we worked. It just carried through to this. It still surprises me in a way 
it's such a breath of fresh air for me to hear you say the things that you're saying. The job that we, I know the job that we did was top notch. I know how we did it and I know why it's good. Sonically, mm-hmm. Tony can maybe address some of the, some of the other things, the psychological, the scripts had to be vetted. And, you know, there's a lot of other work that went into this mm-hmm. from a technical standpoint. You know, I know why it was good because I know that we did it the same way we do. We, we record Billy Joel or, or anything at A&R. We just brought those skills to, uh, to Howie. The caliber of people that, that they hired to do this kind of work. So even just from the beginning, you know, Bernie Hoffer, the, the composer and arranger of all the music, he was the man in New York City if you were going to do a big orchestral project. I mean, he was uh, the McNeil Lair Report years and years ago was on PBS and it was a famous, uh, it was a, it was a famous theme song and Bernie had written that including many, many other advertising commercials that he did. And he, his, his work was really top-notch. So when you actually listen to the, the soundtracks, uh, if you really go and listen to the whole thing, all of the music cues that they created, I mean, they're so interesting and so um, vibrant. And the, the, the kind of um, themes he created for each character, and he created a theme for the thunder tank and he created themes for all kinds of little little uh parts that we could use in 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 the series uh, i was very impressed by all of that music that was created and then going on to the fact that they hired these voiceover people who were in the business 25 30 40 years some of them these were real professionals and you know you would hear them on other commercials you know you would say oh isn't that earl hammond you know, or isn't that uh, isn't that Larry Larry Kenny? The caliber of people that were working on this really was impressive for me. And it was not that I wasn't around that all the time, being in the recording studio, because I was I was around those kind of people all the time. But I was also a fan of animation, and I had never heard the kind of quality that we were doing on other uh, series. It was it, it, the quality on Thundercats, and then continuing on Silverhawks and and Tiger Sharks and everything else we did with Rankin Bass, the quality always stayed the same. Earl Hyman was Grandpa Huxtable in the Cosby Show. The voice of Panthro was uh, Earl Huxtable's Grandpa Huxtable. Is his right. name? No, what was his name? Not Earl. Whatever. Bill Cosby's father. He was a, a Shakespearean uh, actor. Larry Kenny was, of course, you know, the voice of Frankenberry. Um, you know, he, all these people did a lot of uh, voiceovers for jingles. And for them, it was it was a boon also because it was a steady gig. You know, these these actors had it turned out to be four years of work, four years of steady work, plus whatever else they made, resids or whatever. With regards to the music going back, it's sort of amazing how much we took for granted, how much orchestral music there was in television in the 80s. When I went back and I listened to the to the theme song again. I was like, this is this is like a fusion record with with horns That's on right. top. This is this is kind of amazing. It, you know, it jazzes me up now. <laughs> you know, and to what Tony was saying before, Bernie would do like he would do a three minute version yeah. of the Thunder Tank theme. He would do a two minute version of the Cat's Lair, and then he'd do like just like Tony said, he'd do shortened versions of it. And if there wasn't a shortened version mm-hmm. of it, we would create one. Tony would say, "I need the cue to end." when Lino's done climbing up the mountain. So I would just find a good edit point and cut the tape. And again, it was all analog. But that music, there was so much of it. And Bernie was the, the he was such a genius. Bernie was the writer, and you'd call him the arranger also, because mm-hmm. he arranged all those parts, horns and strings. So let's talk about the actual recording of the voices and the music. So first, Larry and Anthony, what were your roles exactly day-to-day in the studios? Being a soundtrack producer, after about six months, I actually got the opportunity to actually direct some of the episodes. In the beginning, Lee Doniker was doing most of the directing at the recording sessions of the uh, voiceover uh, talent. But the process was that we'd get a script. We'd have to read the script, of course, to get the feeling of it all. And what I would do is I would sit with a stopwatch, and as I was reading action, I was visualizing in my mind of what what that action would be, whether the Thunder Tank 
tank roars out of the cat's lair and goes down to uh, this place or that place. You'd see Tony sitting there with a stopwatch in the script going like this because he would actually go through the motions to see how much time it would take physically. I would try to figure out in my head what, how long would this take. And then what we would do is for that section, say it was 30 seconds of action. So it was Cat's Lair to another location. So it was 30 seconds of action that the Thunder Tank was rolling. After those 30 seconds, we would cut in. uh, That 30 seconds was blank tape. Using that section as a cue for the animators that they have 30 seconds to do all of that action. They have 30 seconds to make that animation of the Mm. Thunder Tank going from here to there. Then we would cut in the dialogue line. The thunder tank stops, Lionel gets out, come on, Panthro. So we would have that that line would actually be then slugged in after the blank tape. So that not only the animators were locked into the 30 seconds of the of the action, the animators were also locked into the voiceover uh, mouth movements for the dialogue. A lot of other animated series would let the uh, would do voiceovers after the animation was already complete. The, the voiceover actor had to try to tr- try to mimic what the animation character was doing with their mouth movements. Well, it's the difference of what you see in so many of these um, making the making of Disney or whatever, where you see the voice actors in the studio, which is how we did voiceovers on a film. They watch the film and they and they mouth and they, and they speak. What we did was was the opposite. Like Tony said, we dictated to the animators, and it was great because it was the Bible. You know, when we when we had a master show, when our show was done, that was it. We our job was done. So, and then they had to, as Tony said, draw all the movements and lip lip sync. They did that after the, after we provided them the uh, master. So on the sound end, you guys had a lot of control over the pacing of the show and, and really the direction in that sense. Tons of it. It was all it was all Tony and, and Lee. Lee usually came in after and gave the you know the thumb of approval, but Tony was the person who dictated the time. We all took a hand toward the end at what vocal takes we would use. I and mean, if if we said, "I'm going up the mountain, Snarf," let's go. You know, so Larry would do that four times, and we would take the best one. So what I would do is I would sit at the machine and we recorded a master and a safety quarter inch 15 IPS Dolby A master and a safety simultaneously as they were recording. The safety went was put away in case of anything happened to the master and the master was used to cut up cut to the scripts. I would sit at the machine with a script to my left and the reel in front of me, a chopping block, tape take the lines out. Tony would give me the script and he'd have, they read the line three times and he would circle number three or he would notate the third one. And I would know that I'm to pull the third take of that line. And if I had a question, I'd come back to him and ask. And I would create and compile Mm -hmm. the reel and we'd go back and forth. Uh, I'm done with part one and part two of of show number 12. You want to check it out. He'd come in, he'd, he'd approve it and we'd move on. So we, I ended up with a quarter-inch master vocal dialogue reel, just a master mono. That would eventually get flown up to a 24-track, which we'd have the master mono track and like four sets of stereo music. We could cross-fade as many as we wanted. It was 24-track. And then we'd also add a, some sound effects. We added some of the sound effects, but also the animators, right, Tony? They put in their own sound effects for a lot of it, too. We added some of them, but I think they did it just as much as we did. Technically, real quick, star, uh, and you'll see in the video, we do have this video of our last uh, last hurrah. 414, same mic used on Steely Dan drums. I love the 414. In a star shape, actors around in a circle. Lee liked to work like that, and Tony liked to work like that. So the actors could play off each other, and they did. Uh, each microphone was had a DBX-160X on it for compression. So when Larry or Earl Hammond did Mumra and he went, <laughs> it wouldn't blow us out of the studio. That was basically a real simply how the, very simple, you know, like we would do a voiceover in a commercial, like we would record Billy Joel, and it was all done in the same way. Even with, with each actor doing each line three times in a row, they were all in the room together, you said, in the star formation. 
were there moments where they could actually have like back and forth in the dialogue or was it always three lines and then three lines? You bet. And if we needed clean dialogue, like Mumra had to be harmonized in a lower, they wanted it lower so he'd sound more menacing or we wanted to add an effect. If they were bleeding into the other microphones or if they, if they went over each other's lines, that wouldn't be good because we, we had to aux it out to an effect. So yes, we had to get lines clean, but when they did play off each other, that's when we got the best performances. They were amazing. They played off each other all the time. That, that's that's one of the things that made it great. Things like the effects on Mummer's voice and even the, the sort of approach that was taken to that voice or the burbles. So what was that process like to, you know, see these things on script? You, you know, you have this old crone looking mummy that you know, flies open and reveals this monster and these these little robotic bear things. Uh, what was that process like to, to work with the actors and then also think about what effects to use to get these distinct sounds? The range of the actors, you got to know the actor and what they can do. The snarf voice was what it was. That was Bob McFadden. And he did that voice. We didn't affect that at all. That was mm-hmm. his That was his creation. He was snarf. He'll be forever snarf. God rest his soul. But the other ones, we would just like Mumra, how low do you want it to go? It was a harmonizer, a basic uh-huh. even tight harmonizer. Uh, pitch shifted down a little bit. The burbles was uh, a chorus, I think. We made it sound metallic. So when they were talking, it would sound in that metallic. Mm-hmm. But we'd experiment with it. You know, Tony and Lee would listen to it and they'd say, yeah, that, that sounds good. And then I guess the the acid test was when we see it come back yeah. with the with the picture and see if the, the effect if it matched with the picture. What was production like then? What was the schedule for one episode with all this going on from getting the script, blocking it out, getting the voices, doing any treatment on it? You know, I would get the script probably a week in advance before the actual recording. So I would be prepared. Some days we would do two and three episodes. They would book the Mm -hmm. uh, studio for the whole day, book the actors for the whole day. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how many we would get in or the the total of them per day, but at least two or three we were doing uh, Mm -hmm. per recording day. Then there was a process right after that, because if it was uh, into the series, months into the series, there were shows that were at different levels of production at that point. For instance, we would record a show on a Monday, Monday night, at some time, an engineer who would sit there and edit the master tape down to using take one for this line, using take three for that line. And I would make notations all on my, um, all on my script, mm-hmm. say, this is the take I want. And so there would be an engineer at, at the end of the day sitting there taking the takes that I wanted and putting them all together. So that was the first process of the actual recording. Once that got done, then Larry and I would sit after the recording day and we would go through that dialogue. And I was a really, I was a nitpicker when it came to (laughs) mouth noises, for instance, because I really, really wanted a clean track. And, you know, mouth noises are normal. It, It makes it sound natural. But there was lots of clicks, lots of pops, you know, and I just wanted that clean track. So I made Larry crazy, you know, trying to, and and at some point, you know, we got this real rapport between us. I mean, I loved working with Larry. It was a lot of fun all the time. But we got this rapport that I I, I didn't even have to say anything when he heard a mouth noise. He would look at me and I would, I didn't have to say anything. He would fix it because he knew that was what I wanted, you know. So that process happened after that. Once we would we'd go through all of that to clean up the track and make sure there was all the blank tape in between each dialogue line so that it was the clean dialogue in between all of the action. And then Larry would take that, I believe, at that point, we would take that and put it onto a Nagra. And that Nagra was, had code on it, basically, so that the animators could could be locked into that. We did that just with the dialogue, Tony, or that was with the whole show? We, we sent them dialogue? We sent them dialogue uh, on a Nagra as, as well. A little insert there. The Nagra is a pilot tone. It's a, it's a an off-phase tone. It's those nice, like, James Bond-looking... You've seen Nagras before, Jack. They look like brushed aluminum. They're really beautiful. They're, it's called a Nagra. They run absolutely on speed. You can't vary the speed. That would be synced to a sync tone that's on, on all the 24 tracks. 
so everybody stays in sync basically so uh, tony just reminded me we would send them a copy of the of the dialogue so they can start drawing after that uh got done depending on where we were in the production sometimes we just had to wait until we got some animation back from japan to see what was you know if that was the right timing or not you know we we tried to lock them in but there was still a lot of things that we would be able to move around if we had to but also too it was a half hour show but it was 20 minutes and two seconds so that other 10 minutes was Mm -hmm. basically for commercials that 20 minutes and two seconds was quite a feat to try to get them all, the whole show into that, that little slot. And then after that, uh, we would work on, uh, we would put uh, music onto it as well. Uh, it, it, there wasn't that, and another part of the production for each episode, we'd get to the music part and we would, uh, Larry would lay in uh, music cues uh, under different uh, action sequences. The crew was there probably at eight o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. just to get this room set up and everybody ready to go. Mm-hmm. And we probably started at nine. We, we would take breaks. Uh, so after an hour and a half or two hours, we'd take a break. Uh, we'd certainly take a long lunch break. Most of the time as production, you know, it wasn't a lunch break for us because we would just go back down to the studio. We had actually multiple mm-hmm. studios going at, at one point. So we would have a studio upstairs at Howard Schwartz on the 19th floor that was just doing all the recording. But we would have two other studios on the 17th floor actually involved in production every day or five days a week, I'm sure. So it was a pretty busy day for, especially the recording day was pretty busy. for. But, but for the most part, we worked 10 hours a day. And in all honesty, uh, most of the time it was so much fun that we really kind of didn't yeah. care how long the day was, you know? There were times where there was a real crunch and we would have to get a lot of a lot of shows out mm-hmm. on deadlines. Lee would say to me, would you mind if you came in on Saturday to, to finish up some work? You know, uh, and I said, no, not at all. I was, yeah. I was hanging with my friends, you know, and being creative all day. Yeah, Saturday was fine. You know, so that was the kind of atmosphere that was being created there. How is it sort of establishing that rapport and that rhythm with the voice actors as well? Because as you said, you know, they were also doing other gigs, although this was steady work. So it's everybody, you know, in this room, and I'm guessing they're standing, not sitting at these mics, you know, for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. How is that just sort of getting that chemistry going? As the producer and then director at some point, as I was directing these shows, you got to know about them. I mean, they you got to know about their family. You got to know about what they were doing, other gigs they were talking about. And, and you know, when you get a bunch of actors together, it's also a, a free-for-all. You know, mm-hmm. there's, everybody's got a joke to tell. Everybody's got a story to tell. The lobby of Howard Schwartz recording sort of became almost like a an improv comedy club sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. because there were um, these actors knew each other very well uh, in, in general. Uh, I think that Earl, Ham- uh, Earl Hyman was sort of the outsider because he was actually a trained uh, Shakespearean actor, uh, unlike other voiceover people in New York <laughs> who were just basically doing commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were quite, uh, it, it, uh, it, there was a camaraderie about it. And I was able to kind of, you know, be part of that. They, were, they would let me in. And, uh, but, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, I was 30 at the time, a, a new producer. But everybody treated me as a professional. Uh, so the voiceover people treated me as, as if I was, you know, I was the boss, basically. And when Lee Donica wasn't there or Arthur Reckon or Jules Bass wasn't there, um, you know, I was in charge. So, uh, and they respected that. And, and if, they had a, if they had a question about anything, if they questioned a line or they questioned, a, you know, a way that I directed something, I was totally open because they're professionals too. I would listen to them a lot. I also let them do what they wanted to do most of the time mm-hmm. because they were that talented. You know, I didn't want to restrict them. If they were, if they wanted to go and, and Mumra wanted to keep going with his crazy laugh, you would just <laughs> let the tape roll, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, because you never know what was going to come out. <laughs> right? you, you just give them, give them as much space as possible. So, so it was a nice rapport that I had with, uh, with the crew as well as, uh, you know, the engineers and the assistants and all of that. We were, uh, it was a, It became a family, which was, uh, was was really wonderful. And one of the things about Rankin Bass was, I have to say that they were very, they respected everybody and they treated everybody very, very well. So there was always at the end of a season, there was always a nice dinner that they would all take us out to. 
the actors, the production crew. Sometimes we'd be at the Palm restaurant. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if uh, the Palm is a sort of like this fancy steakhouse mm-hmm. in New York City. And, you know, they show up with 15 people and, and, you know, we'd eat for hours and drink and have a great time. So it was a nice family feeling uh, about the show that uh, reflected in the, in, in the quality of the production. You know, Tony was mentioning the uh, with the actors and and how zany they could be sometimes. Bob McFadden, we got into such a relationship with Bob. He was just this nutty, wacky guy, super talented. He would go home and he would record shows like fantasy shows of his own, and he would say, <laughs> "Guys, could you just listen to this? I put this together at home. Could you just add some music and effects?" Mm-hmm. And they were like, one of the shows is about a, a circ, somebody wor- who worked at a circus, and he, you know, he, I, I don't want to go into I I have some of these tapes. But that was the kind of thing that we did gladly because it was so much fun. Mm-hmm. And here's Bob McFadden doing all the voices, no no editing necessary. He would, like, go in and out of character at home with his whatever he was using at home. And right. we'd say, sure, Bob, we'll, we'll do that. And we did it. And we'd come up with these hilarious... I mean, a lot of it's probably like inside jokes because we knew it was him, but mm-hmm. it was just uh, like Tony said, it was it was a, a very warm communal feeling, you know, like a, like a family. Yeah, it was good. Well, Bob McFadden was. They were all Tony. How many voices were they allowed to do? They could do before they had to be paid paid more. <laughs> Couldn't they do like three or four different characters? Some of them did four characters in every episode. And also, it was interesting because if there was a new character, so for instance, X, X episode had a, a new monster or a new villain or whatever, uh, everybody kind of auditioned for yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, they'd have to make the voice for this new character very, very different than what the other voices they were already doing. Uh, but they would they would audition basically, and 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 then we or myself would uh, would go and uh, you know choose which one we thought was going to be the best voice. Bob McFadden again, who did who did Snarf. He used to joke because he did a great Robert Stack, the the old the old actor Robert Stack. Check it out, Rico. You know he did this very funny voice. And I went down to the studio one time to tell Tony something. I said, "Oh my God, Robert Stack is actually here," because you know. People like Robert Stack came in. I was very excited, and they were acting kind of strange when I had him sign his autograph, Robert Stack. And I got upstairs and said, look, Robert Stack is downstairs. And I look at the autograph, and it's Robert Lansing, who, who's <laughs> another actor. It looks very much like Robert Stack and anybody. That, and anyway, all spurred on by Bob McFadden and his Robert Stack. I don't think he ever got – well, actually, he, he did use that voice in Silverhawks. Who was the voice that was like um, – it was Steel Will. Steel Will. Yeah. Let's call Stargazer. Get him in here quick. And we'd be let, we'd be rolling around on the floor because it sounded like Robert Stack, <laughs> but it didn't matter. Nobody knew who Robert Stack. Nobody, nobody, you know, nobody remembered Robert Stack. Yeah. So. On that last show, they got a stripper for Earl ha- uh, Hammond, voice of Mumra. They got a stripper, and he was very embarrassed. He did not want that. He didn't know they were gonna. Did you do that, Tony? Did you did you order that stripper for him? Who did? <laughs> no, it wasn't me. Came in, she started dancing in the studio, and she's throwing her veils all over Earl, and he's like, "Oh my God!" He sits down and goes, "Get!" <laughs> Everybody was like crying because it's the last show, bittersweet, and here's this young lady uh, doing her seven, dance of the seven veils around around Mumra. <laughs> It's the most non-Thundercast thing I thought I was going to hear, but that's great. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> so you get the script. You're timing everything out. You guys are deciding the musical cues and, and directing the voice acting. So, Tony, what was the difference between, at that point, being a producer and, and actually directing an episode? It was life-changing for me in a lot of ways because it took a while for uh, Lee Doniker to trust me to be able to do these shows, you know, to, to direct these shows. So... For the first three months, uh, she would come down and kind of sit behind me to watch how I was, you know, I was handling myself. And, and for the first three months, I thought I was getting fired every single day. It just never really felt like I was doing the right thing. And then what happened was, is that she had to go to Japan for a month to work with the animators in Japan. So she said, all right, 
you go do your thing. After I would direct the show, I would send it up to Jules Bass to approve it. And after he approved the shows that I was giving him, we just kind of let me go. So I was, I, I kept doing my thing after that. And I was, I, I was almost honored to, for the fact that I could do that in a show that was a hit. Quite a, it was quite a, an accomplishment for myself. And also that, you know, to keep the quality of it up, I really, really worked hard on preparing myself for the day of the recordings. And you may wonder how he did that, because at night, Tony did Japanese flower arranging. And I used to say, <laughs> well, you did what last night? And he'd say, here, I, I did this last night. And he'd come in with this beautiful arrangement. And, you know, we all have our ways of relaxing. You know? <laughs> My ways wow. weren't so uh, healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for me, for me, I mean, I was training in karate at the time, and my my sensei would would say, you know, we're doing a very hard sport here. So what you need to do is have something that's a little bit, uh, something that's soft. So the Japanese flower arranging was my soft side of the karate. But yeah, I was uh, I, I was quite uh, I was quite honored to to be part of that whole situation and 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 grow into it and grow into the part. You also visited the animation studios during production? Yeah, I, I got a chance to go to Japan a couple of times uh, during production. Um, and the first time I went, we got to see the animation studio, Pacific Animation. They were sort of a, maybe an hour or so outside of central Tokyo. So we went up there and we saw, uh, I got to see one of the uh, artist rooms that they were using for the initial production. Now, what they would do is, is that the... Tokyo would take care of all the character designs. They were also the supervisors of all the other animation houses all over Asia that were subcontracted by Pacific Animation. So they were doing animation in Korea. They were doing animation in Taiwan. So the Tokyo office was pretty much, they, they were supervising all of the other animation houses and also for quality control. Uh, when I went to go visit the studio, they, they they showed me one of the artist rooms that were going 24-7. Mm. So in the middle of the artist room, down the middle of the room was a long room, and they were drawing tables back-to-back with each other, all the way down, like a tent almost, mm. you know, the, the slanted drawing tables. And so they were animated sitting on those drawing tables, drawing, while against the walls were cots where animators would sleep while the crew that was drawing would be on their shift. And then when they got off their shift, then the animators who were sleeping would go and work on work, work it. So, so yeah, it was a, it it was a 24 seven production in different places in Asia at that time. And these were all, each cell was hand drawn. I guess what they would, they would have the background. They would put the cell with the characters over them. That's correct. Yeah. 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 I noticed uh, watching a couple of the shows too, just speaking about the animation, something you don't notice when you're a kid, but once you're thinking about it, doing an episode like this and, and reading up on it, you, you notice that there would be a still and they would maybe zoom in or out to give the sense of motion. Was that like a stylistic choice or was that like occasionally they had to lengthen or shorten time? You know, I think that it was both. Uh, most of the animation decisions were made by specific animation. Mm-hmm. But uh, Lee Doniker was really on top of it all in terms of seeing all of the, you know, the animation would come in in dribs and drabs sometimes. So, for mm-hmm. instance, they would sometimes you would get a video from Japan with basic animation. So it wouldn't be a lot of the backgrounds. Sometimes it was it was a character that didn't have all of the the uh, mouth movements yet. Uh, so it was kind of like a basic one to just make sure timing was right, make sure things looked good in terms of its flow of animation, if everything looked good that way. There was a lot of stylistic decisions made, but I think a lot of that got made at the beginning after that first episode, uh, the pilot episode was done. I think that they really did an analysis of, okay, well, we like that, but that's not going to work in every episode. So maybe that kind of dissolve we have from a transition from this scene to that scene, maybe we'll do it a little differently. But I think that kind of all got sort of set in stone. The style got set in stone within the first few episodes. Going back to audio recording a little, we talked a lot about the voice actors, but I'd love to learn more about 
recording those music cues. So when you both came in, the, the theme song was pleaded. Well, Larry, did you, were you in on the beginning? I know, Tony, you said you came in a, a few episodes in, I think. I know where they did it and how they did it, but I was not on those sessions. Okay. They were done at A&R. They were done exactly like we would do any jingle or Dave Grusin's arranging for Billy. We did it all the same. It was done in Studio A1, 799 7th Avenue, full rhythm. Uh, sometimes they, uh, for efficiency, they'd want to record everything together they can, because it was a tremendous amount of cues to do. But other times they would do, you know, the, the standard rhythm section or in section or in sections leave, string sections come in with Bernie at the helm, Bernie Hoffer at the helm. I think it was done over um, the, the original Thundercats library was done probably over a two or three week time span in one shot so they can get it all done because we needed the cues to start the show. Did they expand on that library or was it the same library for the for the whole run? They did uh, when season two came out. Uh-huh. Again, you know, this is all a linear process for us. Silverhawks came next and there was another library for Silverhawks and mm-hmm. Bernie did that one too. And then there was another show called The Comic Strip, yeah. which didn't do so hot. But there was that was four cartoons that was just... A, I mean, you know, we talk about a factory. It was like, oh, my God, how much more can we do? Mini monsters, street frogs, tiger sharks, and a missing one. That was done pretty much electronically, that, that library. But the Thundercat library, about a three-week period, mm-hmm. recorded at A&R Recording. I believe John did that. I believe John Curcio did that. And, uh, yeah, just talking about, like, it being a factory, but you guys also made a lot of friends. It sounds like, you know, it was just a lot of fun. There was a lot of you know, creative energy going on. What were some of your favorite moments or favorite memories from your time working on Thundercats? It got to the point where even though we were working with each other five days a week, we'd get together and have dinner parties on Saturday at someone's house, you know, or someone's apartment. You know, we we wound up, it became kind of a, a group of friends. I mean, we got to go to people's weddings. We saw the birth of children. We got to be part of each other's lives for a, for a really long time. Um, you know, I, I mean, I've been, been to christenings. I've been to bar mitzvahs. I was just, you know, you get into their lives. You get into the other, other, your, your, your crew's lives, you know. Uh, we, did a lot of, uh, we did a lot of socializing was, is more what I would think of as my high points in, in terms of that because the, the show was the show and we were all uh, so, so invested in its quality. But the quality came through because we kind of worked symbiotically. I mean, people knew how to, we knew what we all liked. We all knew uh, our temperaments. We all knew our talents. Uh, you know, some people were better with dialogue than, than music. Some people were better with music than dialogue. You know, I mean, there are times where I'll watch some of the, some of the episodes and I'll know if Larry and I did that episode together, or if it was another producer who worked on that. I know that the way we all created sort of a style in the way we would work on each episode. I mean, it was all a layperson, somebody that was just listening to it wouldn't really know, but after a while, I would know which ones we did mm-hmm. because of the way it was mixed or the way that we liked doing music cues. You know, we got real creative. Part of the, you know, allowing us to be creative was a big deal for Lee Doniker to, to give us that because we we got to put in our personalities in a lot of ways. We got to put personality into the whole the whole show. From a technical standpoint, I'll echo a couple of things Tony said. Two of us got married. Steve got married and Matthew got married. We were at each other's weddings and that was so much fun. My reticence at the beginning of taking this job in the first place was replaced by a real reverence and appreciation for dialogue recording. The mixing stuff I did, you know, I I knew what I could do and I knew how to do it. But dialogue recording, to get a good, clean, good dialogue track and interact, and, and basically, as an engineer, you're directing the talent to some extent, too. If I got a click or a pop or a wind burst, I have to ask them, uh, excuse me, just one more time, you know, so everybody's involved with it. But by year number two, probably, I had such a new respect and a reverence for dialogue recording. And it was just a, a beautiful thing, you know. And, and it, again, what Tony said, 
we respected each other. You know, the team respected each other's boundaries and what we all did. And we got to be a, a well-oiled machine, as they say, as they call it, you know, mm. a well-oiled machine. It was really great. Well, Larry, Tony, thank you guys so much for taking the time coming on and giving us a peek behind what went into creating one of the most popular shows, one of the most popular cartoons of the 1980s. And it's really fascinating to learn just, just how much passion skill and dedication went into making that happen you're very welcome oh, so nice to be with yeah. you yeah great yeah same here thank you so much larry tony thank you both again so much for coming on the podcast i feel like uh we all had some great reminiscing going on uh you guys were certainly digging up great old memories and you could just tell by what you had to say and even the looks on your faces that i could see over zoom and i was just uh very excited to to pair all these stories with all the fantastic adventures I used to watch every weekday afternoon after school. So thank you guys again. It really was a pleasure and an honor. All right, so that's it for this episode. Tell me what you think. Were you like me and haven't thought about Thundercats in a long time? And as soon as you saw the name or maybe saw the logo on one of our graphics, immediately remembered what it felt like watching that show when you were a kid? Were you not a fan or not even aware of it? And did you find it interesting anyway? As always, you can reach out glasshousespodcast at gmail.com glasshouses a billy joel podcast on facebook instagram and twitter and of course if you enjoy what you've heard today and you listen to us on apple podcasts please go over to apple and give us a five-star rating and positive review every five-star rating and positive review lets the almighty apple algorithm know that we are a podcast of merit and they should put us in front of more listeners So it's a quick, easy, and free way to help us grow the community. Well, that's it for me. I hope you enjoyed my playlist episode this year. And Michael and I will see you again in two weeks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.